and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Hello, I hope this podcast finds you well and I hope you and your families are all safe and looking after each other and that you're finding innovative ways to keep yourselves entertained during lockdown, hopefully with lots of reading and writing. Um, I have a lovely inspirational episode for you today. I had the absolute pleasure of chatting to debut author Stephanie Scott about her beautiful novel, What's Left of Me is Yours, a gripping story set in Tokyo that was inspired by a true crime and which explores the question, can you love someone and kill them? Stephanie has won the A.M. Heath Prize, the Jerwood Arvon Prize for Prose Fiction, and was runner-up for the Bridport Prize Peggy Chapman Andrews Award. Bit of a tongue twister. Today we discuss how to effectively write about people falling in love, how to take inspiration from real life and craft it into your own narrative, and Stephanie reveals how she approached combining extensive research with letting the novel guide her. Sarashima is a beautiful name, a name that now belongs only to me. I was not born with it, this name, but I have chosen to take it because once it belonged to my mother. It is customary upon meeting someone to explain who you are and where you come from, but whether you realise it or not, you already know me and you know my story. Look closely, reach into the far corners of your mind and sift through the news clippings, bulletins, tabloid crimes tucked away there. You will see me. I am the line at the end of an article. I am the final sentence, ending with a full stop. Wakare Sasea Agent Goes Too Far by Yu Yamada, published at 6.30pm on the 16th of May, 1994. The trial of Kaitaro Nakamura, the man accused of murdering Rina Satu, began today at the Tokyo District Court. The case has attracted international attention due to the fact that the defendant, Nakamura, is an agent in the Wakaresasea, or so-called marriage breakup industry, and has admitted that he was hired by the victim's husband, Osamu Satu, to seduce his wife, Rina Satu, and provide grounds for divorce. Nakamura claims that he and the deceased fell in love and were planning to start a new life together. If convicted of murder, Nakamura faces a minimum 20-year prison sentence. The judges may even consider the death penalty. Rina Satu's father, Yoshitake Sarashima, told reporters, A business such as this, which destroys people's lives, should not be allowed to operate in Tokyo. Rina was my only child, and the heart of our family. I shall never get over her loss, nor forgive it. Rina Satu is survived by a daughter of seven years old. Can you remember when you first read this? Were you at home at your breakfast table, or in the office scanning the morning news? I can see your face as you read about my family. Your brows drew together in a slight frown, a crinkle formed above your nose. Perhaps the smell of coffee was strong and reassuring in the air, for eventually you shook your head and turned the page. The world is full of strange things. Wakare Sasea was not common in Japan when Kaitaro was drawn into my mother's life. The industry emerged out of a demand for its services, a demand that exists all over the world today. Look at the people around you those you love, those who love you, those who want what you have. They can enter your life as easily as he entered mine. Do you know now, when we first met or where? Was it in the Telegraph, the New York Times, Le Monde, Sydney Morning Herald? My story stopped there in the foreign press. Later articles focused on the marriage breakup industry itself and the agents who populate it, but none of them mentioned me. Lives to be rebuilt are always less interesting than lives destroyed. Even in Japan, I disappeared from the page. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome to the Riff Raff Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, it's a pleasure to speak to you today. I absolutely loved your debut novel, What's Left of Me, What's Left of Me is Yours, blimey. Uh, it was gorgeous. I absolutely adored it. So um, let's please kick things off with um, you giving us a little intro into the novel and yeah, telling us what it's about. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you did enjoy it. Um, I'll start by telling you a little bit about what inspired it. Um, it's in, It's inspired by um, a real case that occurred in Tokyo in 2010. Um, 
in Japan, they have an at-fault divorce system. So if you want to divorce your spouse um, and you want custody of your children or a greater portion of your financial assets or just an upper hand in any way, you can hire someone to seduce your partner and provide you with grounds for divorce. Um, and in 2010, this happened um, in a real case and... Uh, a Wakaresasea, a marriage breakup agent, um, was hired to seduce a woman. He fell in love with her and she fell in love with him and they were going to live happily ever after, actually. Um, but then she found out about the role he played in the breakdown of her marriage and um, she tried to leave him and he strangled her. Um, and he was arrested and, uh, and swiftly confessed. But um, as he was speaking to the detectives, what he said was, I love her. I I loved her and I love her still. Um, and and that really stayed with me. I, it really caught me, actually, because I thought, is it possible to actually truly love someone and kill them? Because love in its ideal form is selfless. Um, and But I mean, but then arguably, of course, there are as many forms of love as there are people. But I loved that idea of... Uh, that was that's really at the core of the novel. Can you can you love someone and kill them? And there are a number of questions that I set up at the beginning of the book and um, and then answer um, as the book progresses. Um, but that was that was really key for me. So the novel is um, it's narrated by a young lawyer called Sumiko, um, and she's raised by her grandfather. She grows up um, never knowing how her never knowing that her mother was murdered. Um, she's told that her mother died in a car accident and she accepts this. Um, and then one day something happens which makes her question everything and she effectively um, goes back to find out what really happened. And uh, there are two narrative strands. There's Sumiko in the present um, and then there's Rina, her mother, and her lover, Kaitaro, and her husband, Satu, in the past. Um, and so it's the story of of all of them and how and why uh, things came to pass. Yeah. And I'm so interested to hear about, you know, so because I understand you had a career in banking. Yes. And then, like, we need to talk, like, maybe I think we need to talk about your writing journey at the beginning okay. of this podcast because sure. it's so interesting. Um, and so you were working in banking and then, and then you came across this legal case. Yes. And then you were like, I need to write this book. Was it, was it, yeah? Um, well, so actually I have, um, I think literature <laughs> sounds really corny, but literature is the, it's my first true love, really. Um, my degrees are in literature. It's um, what I've always studied and, and really what has always been at the center of, of my life. Um, and I was actually doing, a, I was starting a PhD in Renaissance literature. I, my postgrad was focused on Renaissance literature. And so, um, I was about to start a PhD, but then I, I got, ironically, uh, rather frightened of um, penury and all the isolation um, yeah. that, that PhDs can involve. Um, ironic, really, given my my now chosen profession. Um, but but at the time, it seemed quite scary, um, and and so I thought I would go out into the world and and. Uh, and try some different things. I also knew, I mean, I've always wanted to be a writer, always. I was very frightened of it. Um, and it's it's just, it's also just not really a very accepted thing to do. I think particularly um, in in my family, I um, was born and raised in Singapore and my Asian family and my British family are actually very similar. Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> they always wanted me to be a lawyer or a banker or something you know I think that was that was what they had in mind exactly um so I always wanted to write but I knew that if I was going to in in any way that I would have to have the money to do so so I went into banking <laughs> um <clears throat> from renaissance literature and uh and yeah then I spent my the early morning hours when I was working on deals um largely looking at the Oxford Creative Writing Masters website. Um, <laughs> and, and then the Faber Novel course. Um, and I'd always... And I guess when this idea for the novel came about, um, I actually had several ideas for several novels at the time. Wonderful. And this was... I mean, there were also easier novels. <laughs> I mean, I don't think novels are ever easy, but there were certainly novels that seemed more obvious or straightforward. I could have written about, you know... 
Philip Sidney, the 16th century courtier poet and subject of my PhD, um, or or something much more, or my, you know, Asian family's experiences of the Second World War, or, you know, any of those things. Um, but this novel was so pushy. Yeah. Oh, really? And dominant. <laughs> and <laughs> I wrote a short story version of it, um, and then I showed it to Louise Doughty at the Faber Academy, and she was like, this is it, write this write it now um and and so I did that yeah. that's how that came about really. I love the and idea then, of an idea being pushy oh my god it was so pushy <laughs> it was and, and and throughout its writing process it it has such a personality this book um you know even when I was editing it um my editor would say um you know can we do this or this and um you know I accommodated her and and practically everything I think but um but there were a couple of points where I was like, mm, let me let me talk to the novel. <laughs> how, did, how did that how did that look? <laughs> it has views. Um, it's just just a feeling. Me and my desk. Me yeah. at my desk facing the computer, and um, it would just resist me if I tried to do things that went against the natural flow of the narrative, or went against the characters, or you know anything that upset the natural the balance within the story, the chemistry. You know, I mean, there was one minor character that my editor wanted me to kill off and I wrote various versions of that scene and I was like no 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 no. the death is just too heavy it's pulling us out of the narrative you know his disappearance needs to be a very small factor that's just that just occurs it cannot weight down this part of the the book and and um, it's overshadowing the whole chapter um and it, it just can't can't be allowed to do that um so I found other ways around it um but I think that's what your that's what your editor really wants you to do to find solutions to problems and they don't necessarily know what those solutions are or they would tell you (laughs) so she was kind of like just just fix it (laughs) (laughs) you work it out yeah um so so I did um yeah and I I suppose that the, the I mean, you spent a long time writing the book. I did. So it was a, it was a companion to you for, I, I believe, ten was it ten years? Yeah. By the time it comes out, yes, yeah, it will be ten, ten years in the I'm making. Seriously impressed. Like what commitment? <laughs> like, very, very, very impressed. And it shows. The Thank the work you. really shows. And a lot of the, I mean, when I was when I finished it, I read all about all the research that you'd done. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, you really went there with the research. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Which is very wonderful because it it, it makes it feel it it. You know, so so authentic and so wonderful. You know, you've explored so much interesting stuff like Japanese culture, sort of honor and all of that. How how society works. Mm-hmm. That you know, as a reader, I didn't understand until I read the book. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could just if you could talk a little bit about the research that you undertook. Oh sure. And, um, yeah. The and how how doing so allowed you to write the novel that we're discussing today. Okay. Well, um, the research was was very was pivotal actually, um, and. I mean, to be honest, I never stopped researching um, throughout throughout the novel, even in the final edits, even though I was, I was still looking up things um, and and going down very strange um, rabbit holes all the way to the end. Um, but initially, because there's um, my characters are, are well, two of them, um, three of them three of them, sorry, are lawyers to some extent. And there's a lot of Japanese law in the book. Um, and I really wanted to be true to that and and uh, and to, to dive into that system. And so I, I, um, I won, I've won an anthropological um, award for my work on the novel, um, the Toshiba Studentship, which funded um, some research trips to Japan. And there I spent a lot of time with, um, with Japanese lawyers, so defence attorneys, prosecutors, um, you know, law students, uh, wow. because there's sort of law across generations in the novel, I had to look at um, the evolution of how it was studied, how it changed, like it was yeah. just crazy in the notes. And, um, and it really impacted the novel in that. Um, when I was talking to these lawyers, who were just the most wonderful people, and I'm still in touch with them today, I'm still friends with them today. Um, they were all so excited when we sold the novel. Um, I believe there was a lot of drinking involved from the emails <laughs> oh, that they nice. sent me. You know, it was really nice. And actually, really nice. my my message to them in in at the back of the novel is, um, you know, next time the drinks are on me, I'm oh. next in Japan. Oh, that's what you said. Yeah, that's, that's what so I said lovely. to them because <laughs> they sent me these lovely emails where they were like we're so happy and so hungover (laughs) (laughs) guys are crazy um but one of the one of the key things that I learned was um so Sumiko 
she has to get hold of the case file and uh, she has to be able to engage with the past in some way. Um, and I had initial ideas of how I would do this. Um, and I thought, you know, that it would be most straightforward for her to go through the public prosecutor's office um, and for them to give her the file. But then through my conversations with um, lawyers in Japan and also the um, public prosecutors who who work for the Japanese embassy in London, it became very clear to me that... Um, that that would not happen, mm. you know, and I that that it would just be unconscionable. I'm very interested in human frailty, in error, in the margins of error, in um, the boundaries, in forms of transgression. Um, but I I was advised just categorically that a prosecutor would never yeah. hand over that file in that way, and so I had to find another way to get the material into Simiko's hands, um, and and that's just a pivotal part of what is now part one Mm. really um so um in many ways i wrote what i wanted to in the novel and that i let it i let it take me where i wanted it to go i I sort of called this phase free writing um where you sit down with the scene and you just and it can surprise you you Mm. can do whatever you like but it was a combination of that and then also being defined by the research Mm. and i suppose my my organized nature which really is terrified of this whole free writing thing. Yeah, <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> which is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of strange, <laughs> unfathomable process that I just, even to this day, cannot pin down. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you, just in, in terms of how, how that would look in terms of writing it, so you have your research, you know mm-hmm. what's kind of going on, what needs to, what needs to happen within the scene. Yes. Based on like the facts and what's going on, but mm-hmm. then you allow yourself to just free write it. So yeah. and and let the without it being like I'm going to put that point in a sentence. Mm-hmm. Like you just like it's more of a natural process to definitely. combine the two. Yes, like, definitely. In, yeah. Definitely in the first draft, what I did was there was a lot of free writing. I just wrote loads of scenes um, from lots of different perspectives, and then actually um, <laughs> there's a po- photograph of this that I posted on Twitter. Um, the really pivotal structural point for me with the novel was when I laid it out across the floor of my living room mm. and I sat in the middle of it and I actually walked the novel. And oh. in terms of like pacing and um, content, I just set out every scene and walked it. And that was hugely influential um, into the scenes I kept, what I, you know, the way that solidifying the structure um there are whole there's whole perspectives I think um, well there's a Satu's perspective um, that I just cut out mm. because it was slowing the narrative down entirely. Wow! But it it really was that that walking process and we have photographs of it um, because my husband came into the living room and was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> Apparently George Sanders does it too. Oh, cool! Yeah, at the riffraff last night, Naomi Ishiguri was talking yeah. about how oh. he lays it all out on the floor, and when he's building a collection, he does ex- like a similar thing. Maybe not walking it, but he'll mm. look it and he'll work out what the kind of pace is. And I know Zinzi Clemens, if you know her, she did exactly mm. the same thing with her kind of fragmented scenes. And oh, brilliant! I think it's a really yeah. nice idea. It really strikes me that you, as well as being ordered. And stuff, and, and you know, and thorough. You also seem to very heavily rely on your intuition about what feels right with the book. Yes, which is a wonderful thing. Yes, and yeah. if you, it's exactly as you say. What feels right. It's yeah. very much about feeling, um, and all of my engagement with this novel, when it and its personality, is about feeling. Yeah. <laughs> it's just sort of flows of emotion. Flow I think that really us. comes across. My God, it's, <laughs> it is, it's incredibly emotional, oh, and and you. yeah, you really do go on the journey, and I do love the structure. I re- and like I think. So, I think structure, when it's done right, it's so pleasing. I feel like that's the right word for it. And, yes. like, and so did you, I mean, obviously you needed to do it kind of, you needed to sort of intersperse Sumiko's journey mm. with that of Rena and, and Kaitura and all that. And, and you know, and, and you had to kind of explain what she was. So in a way, I suppose the structure kind of dictated itself a little bit, but then it you did. also needed to, I'm, I'm sure there was probably a moment when you were like, how am I going to structure this? And I think a lot of writers they have to get that structure right in their head before they can really kind of like go for it. Yeah. I felt that I feel like mm-hmm. I need to know what a structure I'm writing to. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe it's just procrastination, but no. you know, I like to know about the structure. So, so did that come quite easily to you, the structure? Um, I think, yes, the structure actually was 
structure itself was very dominant um, and uh, self-fulfilling, as you've as you've said, and and also quite organic. I mean, I was I when I was sent, you know, I didn't really, I don't really have. I had a lot of beta readers towards the end of the novel, but I didn't have um, very many readers as I was writing it. Um, and uh, But there was one person I showed it to, and she was like, this structure is mad. Um, <laughs> she was like, I'm not sure it will work. And I was like, no, it will. <laughs> um, and it was the fluidity, that very fast interchanging between scenes and perspectives. Um, and it was very dominant in that it just, ins- it just insisted that it be that way. Yeah. Um, and it felt very organic. Um, having said that, um, you know, there's, I did have to take some time off writing this novel due to family stuff. Um, life will always intervene. Um, but I think parts four and five, um, I came back to that part after a break. And I did actually spend a great deal of time at my desk with sheets of blank paper trying out different configurations for the scenes in Mm. part four and five um and part four i think it was really forged in the crucible of this um i think it's one of my favorite parts um but yes actually to an extent i did have to sort it out in my head like which way it was going to go before Mm. i could sit down and properly polish it yeah yeah and and write it and pull all the threads. You know, it's almost like you're pulling on all the strings. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I like that visual. Um, so what what advice do you have for people that are that are, that are putting a lot of research into mm-hmm. a novel? Um, persevere. <laughs> um, and I guess don't don't get bogged don't get too bogged down by it. Mm. Um, you know, enjoy the reading, um, enjoy the detail. Um and I suppose even days when you feel like you're not getting much done, or, or, and this is even worse, the people around you think you're not getting much done. My <laughs> husband's like, all you do is just sit and and stare <laughs> into the distance. You're not actually doing anything. And I was like, I am. I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking really hard. <laughs> he was like, mm, whatever. <laughs> but in spite, in spite of all these these voices and other people, um, you know, you never know what will be useful you never know what will stick with you so just absorb it all and 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 also feel be very very comfortable with setting it down at Mm. some point and putting it behind you almost when you're writing the prose I mean I had all of this research in my head and it's really impossible to hold it all there at the same time and I did actually have a sense quite visually of putting it on the floor behind me and then writing the scene and the details that you need the facts that you need they will come forward Mm. so don't worry about having to include everything you know you're writing a novel not a treatise or a postgraduate text or anything (laughs) you're writing a novel so let the story guide you and um, the facts that are necessary will present themselves yeah and it's it's kind of like you know there were certain points when you explained what things were or um which were necessary yes but I often find like you know it it must be very tempting to just put everything that you've researched into it and Mm. then and and it's not actually required for the no, story. You must not do uh, But that. like writing yeah. from the place of knowing everything that you've kind of discovered mm-hmm. seems to be the the go-to thing to be doing. Yes. Um, so, you know, you've worked incredibly hard on this. I'm like, it's incredible. It's, you know, well done. Um, <laughs> Thank you. It, it must be, you know, you've worked so hard on, on developing the world. It must be pretty crazy when it's released into out to readers and to all the different countries that it's sold into. And your characters are then, then theirs to fall in love with and the world is theirs to be absorbed in. How have you found, or how are you feeling, because it's not coming out until April, yes. how are you feeling about it coming out? Um, it's, it's terrifying <laughs> in many ways. Um, it's, it's wonderful to see people reacting um, to the characters. And, and you're right, it's been my personal, internal world for so long. It's incredible to have people um, engaging with it and talking about it. And I've had readers talk to me about how, you know, when they're watching Kaitaro, they feel something and, and then they correct themselves. They're like, I mean, reading. Um, but I'm so delighted that that's how they feel, that they're watching it because it it is 
filmic and I, you know, I very much saw the characters and played out every scene in my mind mm. um, in that way. So I'm glad that comes across. And I mean, it's it can be quite unnerving. I mean, as well in, you know, with social media um, as it is today, um, it's kind of hard to set boundaries between your working life and and your your personal life and um and but what has been really wonderful um surprising but but wonderful is on instagram is book bloggers or booksellers um contacting me because they've read the book and um you know some of them are halfway through and they're in the middle of the love story and they're sort of enraptured and then they'll you know they'll they'll get to the murder and they'll message me and they'll be like (laughs) it's like an outpouring of emotion yeah it's like they're giving some of the scenes back to me and I'm like "Mm mm-hmm yeah good that's how I was I was intending to make you feel yeah yeah, wonderful god Um, job done but but yeah but it is it's it's great um it's lovely it's really lovely to see and it's it's actually really lovely to to be seen when people get the book it that's incredibly special good amazing I'm so happy for you (laughs) um so let's let's talk about the love story Mm. because um yeah I mean it's 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 a a beautiful complicated like you know and like you say like I feel like I knew them you know and I believed in their love story and like and like I still did at the end you know like it was my God, yeah, it was it was very well written, and a lot of um, let me just find this question. Yeah, their love story is unforgettable. Thank uh, you. Can you talk a little bit about you know writers always want to nail the love story, you know, yes. like it, it, even if someone's writing another genre, you know, mm-hmm. the the love story still is the thing that most people are secretly the most interested in. And I just yes. um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about your approach to creating their story? Obviously, you had the you had the sort of nuggets of the facts Mm. but yeah how did you weave their story and how how did you approach showing them falling in love oh wow that's a really good question um I I actually love I love reading love stories um and it's probably my go-to in fiction um I mean there are a number of like revenge narratives and narratives of self-discovery that inspired the novel but I love to read um, romance, actually, and it's one of the reasons why um, I was quite insistent on a full sex scene. It sounds yeah. like someone people fought me. They didn't. No one fought me. Um, but <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was quite determined um, because you know, in, in literary fiction, it's often not done. You've got to close the bedroom door. Yeah. You know, and I thought, damn it, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I really, I really, really wanted that. Um, but as, aside from the physicality. Um, I think the love story was the hardest part of the book. Mm. It was what I worked on the most, uh, undoubtedly. Um, And it started from, I mean, really, Rina and Kaitaro, um, these are characters that I built from the ground up. Um, You know, I had to, I had to really go in search of them. Mm. Um, And whether that was, you know, walking through Tokyo or... You know, I travelled around the the coast um, in Japan a lot by myself. Whether it was spending time doing that, or or I actually, and because my characters are photographers, I had to teach myself to become a photographer. And I also, I also did photography courses, so oh, wow. like development. Yeah, um, it was as a, part of the research, definitely. No, it was a really, it was a deep dive. I actually became a photographer oh God, for a while. That. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I think novelists are yeah, obsessive, crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's got to be. And I mean, it's also slightly self-indulgent in that you get to do and become what you want. Yeah. Um, but I, but I did. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not as accomplished a photographer as my characters are. Um, but I did have to enter that world, and um, and so it was, it was from building, building them up from, you know, their their backgrounds, um, their loves. Um, their hates, their, I guess, their struggles, um, and then finding the points at which all of those would intersect emotionally. Like the, it was really crucial to me um, because Kaitaro is a marriage breakup agent and a professional seducer. What was really key for me was, well, why Rena? Mm. Why does she break him? Why does mm. this professional man suddenly become unprofessional? Yeah. You know, what pushes him? Um, what makes him fall in love um, 
and why is why are they the answer um to each other mm. um and i was really interested in um that idea of how in love you can become incredibly dependent on someone um and even if if you if you reach wuthering heights to the extent of your own survival you know your your very existence hinges on another person mm. um and i was very interested in in that and so it was just about finding the emotional meeting points and then creating them and it took a really long time yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but i mean the the it it works so beautifully you know Thank like you. they they are characters that will stay with me i think and i hope oh. i see them in the film Thank you. Yeah, I really like when you said that. I was like, oh yeah. Like, I feel like I visualized it the whole way through. Like it was. Mm. Um. So, what advice? What advice do you have for um, people that are writing about people falling in love? Oh wow. <laughs> um. Read voraciously. Read a lot. I think read a lot of different kinds of romance as well. What kind of romance um, do you read, or have you read? Oh God. Um. Well everything um because i studied literature so i i um uh all of the i suppose all of the traditional texts um but also a lot of contemporary fiction i mean i really really love maggie farrell she's a massive influence um on my own writing um but i would also actually i would also give um you know a, a shout out to uh commercial romance as well um you know, and even, even you know, dare we say it? I have a number of friends who um, who write, uh, you know, bodice rippers actually mm. under pen names. Yes, uh, and and they're very very brilliant women um, and very successful women, like yeah. far more commercially successful than most of us will ever wow. be. Um, and uh, and it's you know one of them actually is a Renaissance literature professor. Wow, she's one of the. She's one of the absolute leading lights of the the romance scene in America today. Um, but she but she has a double life, and her yeah. other life is as a uh, <laughs> a Renaissance literature professor. Um, Amazing. But what I love about some of these novels, I mean, people can you know make fun and say, oh, it's just about bodice ripping. But what I love about them is how quickly and incisively they get to the emotional core of a situation, mm. and how they get people to feel very deeply, very quickly. Mm. Um, so. So, um, yeah, I, I disapprove of the snobbery that surrounds yeah. this. I, I say read everything. Yeah. Read absolutely everything. I don't think I've read enough bodice rippers. No, I don't. Yeah, think I, I think I need to maybe add that to my, my repertoire. Well, they're really fun. And also, I mean, if you want to learn how to write great sets, yeah. I mean, these are the books that do it. Yeah. They do it really, really well. I, I, I could I could do with reading some. I was actually, <laughs> I commented on, because there was an article that were on Twitter that someone mm. put about, writing about sex and how tricky it is and I'd literally just finished your book and I, I, I thought you nailed it thank you yeah and, and so what advice do you have for people that are apart besides reading bodice rippers besides reading bodice rippers um well also I mean with the read everything I think also you know be kind to yourself when you're when you're writing these scenes they are extremely difficult I think the sex scene was the one of the hardest scenes for me to write and I did several drafts um, there were various incarnations of it. Um, <laughs> How were those early ones? Oh, God. Well, the first one was just a disaster. I mean, there was sand. It was ghastly. Um, <laughs> Sand's never a good Sand is, no, it's yeah. never. <laughs> it's like, mm. um, And I actually had to have a drink to sit down to when I first sat down. To, I had to make myself a gin and tonic. and Light like, a few candles. Let's do it. <laughs> but it was horrible. Yeah. Um, and actually, the, the best, I suppose, the best sexual writing that I've written is when I'm stone cold sober and really... Really serious about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so drink or not, as you as as serves you best, and uh, be kind to yourself as well. And don't worry if the early drafts look horrendous, because yeah. you can fix them, and that's that's fine too. That's a, that's a good lesson in writing in general, isn't it? Like, yes. You know, you can fix things once you've got something down, but it's, yeah. that, it's that getting something down that's often the hardest part the absolute fucking nightmare yeah it is <laughs> you really feel like it's, yeah you, you can just be you can really block yourself worrying yeah. too much about how you fir- what you first get down mm. I'm definitely guilty of that um <clears throat> in in regards to the the spark that like the, the legal case that sparked the novel mm. you know some a, a lot of people have sort of that moment when they 
they they read 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 something or read a story or you know I, I interviewed Richard Roper got in this exact room mm. and he'd written one about people that would go that would find people that were that died alone and they would go they they go to their funerals and stuff like that mm. and that was his moment where his it was kind of sparked that he would write that and I think people ha- people often have that they have that thing where they go I want to write about that and so what advice would you have for people that have found that thing mm-hmm. that they that has kind of set their creativity alight. Yeah. And now they want to focus on building a story. What advice do you have for them? Um, I'd say follow it. Mm-hmm. Follow that instinct. Um, I think uh, Sarah Collins describes this as the live wire of the novel. Um, your own personal connection, the internal sort of spark. Follow it. Um, don't let go of it. And And I suppose, you know, trust in it. I mean, for me, when I first read the article, what um, what interested, there were a number of things that interested me about it. But um, so not only that the, uh, the murderer in real life had said that he loved his victim and loved her still, but also that sense of media saturation that we get in this day and age, almost an ennui, um, how easy it is to dismiss newspaper stories and these tragedies that are mm. reported in them and how, how they sort of glance off us now. Um, you know, when actually these are people's lives, these are real. Um, and in the real case, um, I've, I've gone to great lengths actually to change all of the details and I've moved the story, um, part of the story, 20 years back into the past. Um, but, you know, in the, in the actual case, um, there were children everywhere. Um, you know on both sides and I thought um, but they were just mentioned in this very glancing and different fashion and I thought my god what is life going to be like for those Mm. children Um, and so I really was interested in the stories behind these newspaper articles and the realities of life and also I mean in murder victims they are silenced (laughs) in the most brutal physical Mm. way um, so I really wanted to find Rena's voice again, and I wanted Sumiko to find her own voice, but also to recover her mother's life that has effectively been erased mm. from existence. There was that moment. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna spoil it. But okay. there is a line during the kind of the the murder mm. that just broke my heart. Like, I, yeah, I was just like, and on that note, it kind of mm-hmm. you know. So one thing that. I had a lot of sadness about with the novel was the loss of potential of Rena. Like, what mm. an interesting woman, what a talented woman, what a kind of alive, yes. amazing human. And, um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about your approach to, like, it felt like such a loss of potential, yeah. you know? And, um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about your your exploration of that? Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you say that. I, I love Rena. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to have favourites. Um, I think she was mine yeah she's mine she's mine she's my favourite too Um, I think there's so much in Rena um, that that fascinates me in you know the position that she's in um, you know in some ways looking at her position um, in society you would think that she has everything. Um, but I, I was very interested in the way in which she also has nothing, mm-hmm. or she's not happy. Mm-hmm. She's trapped and constrained, um, even by herself. Um, you know, I think what interested me most when I was writing the novel was this idea that um, everyone is responsible for what happens. Everyone. Uh, kind of like uh, one of the, a reader pointed this out to me. She said it was like in, an inspector calls. I was mm. like, yeah, that hadn't even occurred to me until that moment. But yes, everyone is responsible for Rena's death, even Rena. Mm. Um, and I guess I wanted to explore the tension between everything we want um, in life, everything we can be, that energy, that desire, that passion, and what happens when we're trapped and constrained as so many people are, as so many women are, I think, around the world. I'm really interested by the way in which um, prescribed roles can constrain women, expectations placed on us, mm. um, restrict us. Um, and so I think Rena's energy and 
you know, just what she wants to do and her creativity, they fight against these constraints mm. continually. And that's <coughs> that's where that tension in the novel comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. And you, you really feel that, that kind of like, that, that energy. Yeah. Yeah. And really it is comes in, through. It's in all of us. Yeah. You know, we're all constrained in some way. Um, and she just pushes against it. Mm. And she's trying to be free. And I mean, in, in a way, it is a great tragedy that when she finally realizes um, how she can be free and she finally figures out how she should live, she no longer does. Yeah. Oh my god! Yes, that was. I mean, that was that was the moment. Sorry. No, 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 no. no. That's it. Was it was like you know that. I mean, I do. Am I allowed to say the line? Or, yeah. No, like, tell me. When when she says, um, like the moment when she realizes that's all she's gonna be. Yes. I was like, oh my god! Like, yeah, it was oh, very yes. emotional. I feel emotional now talking about it. Thank like, you. Yeah, it was beautifully written. Like, Thank what, you. Because you know you're obviously building towards that scene so much, and you. You feel so much for the characters. Mm. And you, I was desperately hoping that something else was going to happen that meant that it wasn't what you thought it would be, yes. you know? And so I, I kind yes. of had that hope all the way through. Yeah. And then it was dashed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, like, good, because, you know, it, doesn't, it shouldn't be a neat story, you know? Yeah. Because, it, like you say, it was a tragedy, This that things like that could happen. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it, like it, it's, it affected me. And you're right. I mean, there's possibility throughout the narrative, but you do know. Yeah. I wanted the reader to know. They yeah, know yeah. in their heart of hearts. They know. Yeah, they do. Like, but I, 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 I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite see how they could get there. Mm-hmm. But and I was kind of yeah. I just was hoping that it would of be course. something else. No, of course, yeah. and you're meant, to, you're meant to. And, yeah. and I think that's the how and the why is mm. at the heart of the book. That's why it's so. Um, that's what's interesting about the novel. Yeah, um, amongst a billion you. things. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it also was, you know, you've written all of these very complicated characters, and all of them have things that are you admire in them, and mm. have things that frustrate you about them. And yeah, you know, they're human beings. They're all, you know, complicated. Which are the most interesting characters? They're realistic. You know, that they're driven by love, protection, desire, honor, which is obviously a mm-hmm. huge thing in Japan and all around the world, obviously. Um, yeah, can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about your kind of exploration of each character's sort of motivations for their actions? Because mm. obviously, Yoshi is—he's um, mm. an interesting character, and you know, for, for how much he loves Rina and Samiko, yes. like, you know, like there's there's still like restrictions that mm. his kind of upbringing and like place in society, yes. play, you know, that that is a constriction, and, and like you know, there's there's so much of people feeling like they have to fulfill a certain role when it's against what they... Yes, and I, the distinctions between love, protection, possession mm. um, are really uh, central to Yoshi. He's actually one of my favourite yeah. characters too. I, I really... Um, I thought I, I, I really saw overall him. kindness and love. Yes, he's very him. sympathetic. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I think he's very sympathetic. Um and there are people who've had different readings of him, yeah. which which is really interesting. But um, but I think I think he's sympathetic, and that process of mm, I think it's humanization, finding the humanity, the sympathy in each of the characters. Mm. I had to go and spend time with them individually, um, and Yoshi, I. I think I, I understood him very clearly from from the outset. Mm. Um, he was one of the characters that I think was most developed in my mind when I started writing. Rena and, and Kai, I had to build from the ground up. Um, but Sumiko and Yoshi were the ones that were, I suppose, most immediate mm. to me. Um, humanizing Satu, uh, the... Yeah. evil oh. husband was very difficult um i actually had i had scenes written from his perspective which did humanize them and yeah. him and i i took them out of the narrative yeah. because they slowed it and then i had to create i had to turn what had been conveyed into these scenes i had to insert them into the text in you know brush strokes and details so that they would still be there but mm. not slow anything down yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and try and give him try and give him you know sympathy and room for empathy even yeah um because no one just you know villains aren't fun if they're if they're totally villainous yeah um so and i mean i actually felt i mean i had to really dig deep 
with him, but I do feel sorry for him. Mm. I do, you know, I do understand actually why he does the things he does. Yeah. And I hope the reader will understand him too. I mean, of course they can hate him if they like. Yeah, I totally, I totally hate <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but like you do, but you do, you, you are like, it does feel like brushstrokes of being mm. like, okay, well I kind of, I can kind of see that. And like, you know, there's, there's, li- there's little just reminders that, yeah, he's not like some kind of like evil, he, he's still a human being. Yes. Even if he's choosing to live his life in a way that I didn't like. You wouldn't, yes, <laughs> that most people like, wouldn't you know, choose, yeah. We could all be judgmental. Mm-hmm. But, um, <clears throat> so, um, over the over the course of writing the novel, you entered several prizes. Yes, and and you know, and as you say, you won an anthropological uh, anthropological prize mm-hmm. for your research. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I, th- I don't, I'm not sure that uh, many writers that are sort of starting out are aware of these all the, the availability of all these prizes and how much right. they can help them and support writers in their journeys. So I wonder yes. if you could just talk a little bit about which ones you entered and yeah, and how they helped you. Of course, with pleasure. I, um, you know, I hope people do find out about them. They're completely essential, I think, to the writer's journey. Um, of, and and oftentimes, you know, with um, with deciding to write, um, you know, and I now write full time. Um, in, in in the earlier stages, it's it's very difficult to make the balance sheet <laughs> balance, mm. um, you know. And so these course these prizes, some of them will give you a financial prize, but some of them will also just give you support. Um, and these were essential to me. Um, I think the two that were most key were one was the Arvin Jerwood Award, um, which was really brilliant. That it was a year of mentoring and writing retreats and. Um, publicity support and a showcase in London um, wow. which introduced us to agents and Jerwood and Arvin they choose three novelists three poets three playwrights every year um, that was really really helpful to me it just gave me the time the time away and then also the professional support that mm. I needed you know to start thinking about my social media presence to start thinking about how I would present myself to start getting used to reading in public and performing um, that was very very helpful and then the uh, National Centre for Writing Inspires Award um, was also very very helpful um, I think these were the two um, main support awards um, in in my sort of early writing life that were very influential um, the anthropological grants really helped with with research but um but that was largely directed by me um, what was very very helpful was um, I did have to take some time off from writing in the middle of the novel due to various um, family traumas and things but that that actually took like a couple of years out mm. of life and and away from the book and um, you know it got to a point where I thought well am I ever going to finish this novel and you know I'd invested so much by mm. that time that it would have been deranged not to finish it I think and uh, deadlines can be so helpful I think the prizes um, the structure that they Im- you know ins- <laughs> enforce in your life um, is very very helpful and and actually I was at this moment of uncertainty you know despair um, trepidation and I I entered the Bridport okay um, the Bridport first novel award um, very much at the last minute uh, you know very much a couple of hours before the deadline um, and then I was you know long-listed and shortlisted and um, you just because you're submitting a sort of hefty chunk of the novel you have to get it up to scratch and that was really this was in my year of editing pulling it together before I submitted it to agents and um, that just really helped it helped to focus me um, and helped me pull everything together and um, it was it was absolutely wonderful um, to be part of that and and actually I think um, it was a week a week after the the Bridport award ceremony um, where I sent it out to. I finally sent it out to agents. I'd had I'd had interest from agents um, very early on in my writing career, and um, and that was a very nice crutch mm. um, because you you know you have people waiting, you know you have people believing in you. Um, I did confidence. have yeah, I, I did have offers of representation, but I wanted to finish it on my own in my own way, mm. um, which definitely took me longer, yeah. <laughs> but was really really worthwhile, and I'm so so glad I did that. Um, but a, a week after the Bridport, I sent it out to agents and um, 
and then actually my my agent contacted me within 24 hours and was like who's your agent anthony harwood okay yeah he's brilliant um and that was that was lovely too because actually i suppose there are two moments of extreme terror in a writer's life um well probably many more but for me (laughs) the the two most prominent um were submitting to agents and um submitting to publishers and um the vulnerability vulnerability. submitting to agents was terrifying because you know I'd, i'd had interest for years i'd been writing the novel for years and then you suddenly think but they haven't read the whole thing and what if when they do, they hate it? Mm. And what if I'm just a loon who's just been, you know, indulging my own madness um, for years at a time? Wow, oh, the horror! Yeah. I mean, so the enormous pressure of that um, was 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 very frightening. And so actually, I'm really, really glad um, there were a couple of agents who came back to me within 24 hours, and I'm just deeply, deeply grateful. Mm. I actually started, I got the first offer in a taxi and I started to cry um, because I was just like oh not insane yeah thank goodness <laughs> thank <Phew>. god <laughs> not insane so yeah <laughs> sorry I forget what you actually no, asked no, no. me <laughs> like, I, I was I was just I was asking about about the prizes and all the different things and then yeah. and so it's nice to know about the journey but so. prizes help um building <clears throat> building up your building up your writer biography really does help yeah. it, it is something to do that you should do and I mean I also wrote poetry and short stories in that time, and all of this is very helpful. Um, but also, equally, above all, the novel is the most important thing. Mm. So, write the novel, finish the novel, make it as good as it can be. Yeah. It really does actually need to be as good as it can be before it goes out to yeah. agents and and publishers too. And yeah. everyone can you can get quite impatient about that part of the process, can't you? Because you're like, oh, yes. someone else help me. Someone else take the responsibility for this. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what they said at the Faber Novel course was, um, which I really t- took to heart, perhaps too much, um, was, you know, we don't care if it's taken five years. We don't care if it's taken 10 years. We really just care that the novel is the best form of itself. Yeah. You know, and then we'll, we'll, want, to, we'll want to buy it. Um, we don't care how long it took for you to get there. Yeah. Um, and I obviously, you know, took that to heart. <laughs> yeah. Great. Did you do the Faber course at the beginning of your... At the very, at the very beginning. beginning. Okay, amazing. At the very beginning. Well, I think that all of your hard work and dedication has massively paid off. And I wish oh, you... Thank you. ...all the success in the world with it. And like, yeah, I'm just, it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today about your journey. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you so much, Amy. It was lovely to speak to you. So lovely. Thank you. listen to and enjoy the riffraff podcast please give us a cheeky little review over on itunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts it helps people discover we exist cheers